Hey guys, Tucker here, co-host of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. Before we get into this week's show, I wanted to let you know that we're currently looking for more projects. So for any of you guys that listen to the show that may be an agent or otherwise that have a property that you're looking to sell, we'd love to hear from you. Obviously, we're looking to purchase properties that are maybe not best suited for the retail market or maybe they need to be redeveloped. So we do renovations and we do new construction so we could buy an existing home that maybe it smells like cigarette smoke, maybe it hasn't been updated in decades, maybe it's got some fun functional issues, some problems like that, or maybe it's just in an area that is best suited to take the house down, partition the lot, maybe build a couple new homes, or just build one new home in its place, and anything in between. So if you guys out there in Listenerland have anything that would be best suited selling to a development company like ours, we'd love to hear from you. You can go to our website, which is ttmdevelopmentcompany.com, and when you go there, there's a Contact Us tab. Click on that, and you can send us a message, and we'll get back to you shortly thereafter. We'd love to hear from any of you guys out there that have a property like this, and hopefully we can do a deal together. This is the Portland Real Estate Podcast, your number one place for anything you need to know about the Portland real estate market, along with in-depth interviews from our local real estate industry experts. Now, without further ado, here are our hosts, Tucker Merrihue from TTM Development Company and Steve Nassar from Premier Property Group. All right, everybody out there in listening land, welcome back. This is episode 105 of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. We're back this week. We have a really cool guest for everybody. But before we get into all that, of course, I have to welcome my co-host of the show. What's up, Steve-O? Hey, g- glad to be back on the show. Very excited. I have to I have to warn you and everyone else. Um, I think this might be the first time where I've got a tiny scratch to my voice. I have no idea why. I don't feel sick. I can assure you of that. But I definitely sound different, right? <laughs> so I'm gonna guess um, you will be sick by tomorrow, but uh, <laughs> we'll see. So there you have it. But yeah, excited for today's show. I'm and actually, um, in all of the uh, years that we've been doing this, which were quickly, I think, approaching f- the five year mark, <clears throat> um, it's kind of surprising that we haven't had a guest from this organization that's such a huge part of Portland real estate. So I think it's long overdue. I agree. And uh, with that being said, I guess I'll welcome our guests to the show. So, Mr. Ezra Hammer, what's happening? Welcome to the show. Hey, gentlemen. Thanks for having me here today. Big fan of the pod and uh, really excited to be joining you. Thank you. Yeah. And Ezra reached out to us. And uh, this is a reminder to all of our listeners. You know, if, if you are a, a, de- a devoted listener and you and you have an idea for a show, man, we, we're always ears. And if, if we think that it makes sense and it's valuable, Gosh, we would we we love to to bring him on here. So Ezra reached out to us. Ezra, who do you work for that is long overdue to be on the show? Yeah, so I'm with the Home Builders Association of Metropolitan Portland. It's a bit of a mouthful, but uh, folks might know us by the HBA. Um, we produce the Street of Dreams, um, which I know you guys have delved into annually on your podcast. Street of Street of what? Street of Dreams. What is now? Is that like uh, is that a mattress company? <laughs> Just kidding. Street of Dreams is huge. Everybody knows the Street of Dreams, and everybody knows the HBA. Yeah. So you guys are you guys are a, a juggernaut in Portland real estate for sure. I would venture to say everybody knows about the naked hot tub session at Street Dreams this year too. But, you know, that's just a side note. Listen, that was only at the black party. So uh, if if you want to um, be privy to all the craziness that happens, you got to get your block party tickets. Yeah, 
Oh yeah, were you there, Ezra? I was there, but I was working, so I've just heard everything third hand. Third hand. <laughs> what does working at the block party look like? Working at the block party is spending a lot of time with members that are excited to talk to me about all the important things they want us to be working on. Um, I head up our government affairs team, and so we work with local jurisdictions throughout the region on pro-housing policies. Um, and as I know the two of you have dug into, and as we'll dig into today, there's a lot of challenges out there that folks are facing. And so um, whenever people see me, they, uh, they want to talk. So, um, okay, and you, you, by the way, you are a lawyer through and throughout, I have to tell you, like, <laughs> only, only a lawyer gets asked what a, a question about a, a party and turns it into that legalese, but, but let me, let me ask that again. So you were at the block party and, and I may have to interpret a few of your things today, and you were, you were there and people were walking up to you and engaging in in-depth conversations, hence why you were working? That That's absolutely right. Okay. Did you have a cocktail or a beer in your hand through that process? There, uh, who were kind enough to gener generously donate um, some of their product. Um, and so I don't want to shout anybody out specifically, but, uh, if you were at block party, you probably tasted some of the delicious infused drinks uh, that were available. And I might've, uh, had one of those. Okay. Okay. Well, so you, so you were having a little bit of fun. Good, good, Absolutely. Good. Okay. Ezra, well, tell us about yourself. We've kind of dabbled in this a little bit. Tell us about yourself, how long you've been with the HBA and where you came from and background. Yeah, absolutely. So I am a reformed land use attorney, uh, who used to practice down in Los Angeles, uh, my portfolio down there had me working primarily with folks building large scale, so 100 plus unit multifamily housing, as well as mixed use and some industrial. Los Angeles County is unique in that there's 89 cities in the county and about another 50 in the immediate uh, geographic area. And, you know, with each one of these cities having their own planning commission and city councilors and mayors, my job was driving between these jurisdictions and sharing my clients' wonderful projects with the decision makers um, who would be voting to approve their projects. My wife and I fell in love with the Portland region about nine months ago, and we decided <clears throat> to, uh, to make the choice that so many other folks across the country are making, which is to come out here and join you in, in beautiful Portland. Gotcha, yeah. And so you were, you were not with a builder association in, in California, correct? Right. So uh, I came from private practice. Um, we were members of and participated with the local builders organization down there. It's called the Building Industry Association. It's a sister um, organization to the Home Builders Association up here. Um, and we worked on uh, a lot of the similar issues that folks are grappling with up here. So whether it's the cost of producing housing or ensuring that jurisdictions are making enough land available for housing. There's a lot of similarities in the challenges faced by builders and developers up and down the West Coast. And I'll Absolutely. interject here, Steve. I mean, we had, we should probably let our, our listeners know, we had coffee with Ezra uh, a week ago or so, and we actually went through some of the stuff that he's mentioning there. But basically they help, or what he's saying is that they help go over like 
land, available lands reports, things like that, right? That say how much land is available for builders to build on. And they basically do an audit of it to make sure that nobody's lying or maybe misrepresenting or maybe just has some information that's not factual and could be updated, right? So that's some of the stuff that they do. Um, I know we've got a, a bunch of other questions, so I'll let you tee them up, but just wanted to kind of clarify that for our listeners. And we had we had coffee with them. We talked about these things, and we said, well, you know what? There's a lot of these things that we could talk about on the show in addition to just kind of digging in what the HBA does and how it affects those of uh, you guys that are listening right now. Yeah, and we will get to that. Ezra, some of, some of the stuff we talked about, um, and I'm glad you mentioned that, Tucker. I was actually thinking it might make sense to let our listeners know we, we've talked about some of this stuff So, um, and over coffee together. Um, I, I thought it was kind of fascinating, Ezra, Just, and I think our listeners would um, benefit from it. I incidentally was at an uh, open house over the weekend, and um, a, an attorney came in from California, very similar to yourself, and he was looking to relocate up there. So we had a very similar conversation that we had. But so you were a, a licensed practicing attorney in, in California. You've moved up here now. You're working for the HBA. Talk to us about that process to become an attorney here or, and, and, and reciprocity or the lack thereof and what that looks like. Yeah, that's actually one of the funnier um, nuances uh, about coming up here because California doesn't accept reciprocity um, for legal licensing with any other state, nobody accepts it with them. So um, it'll be fun to take the bar a second time. Uh, for all of you out there who um, have taken it, uh, you know uh, what what a what a really engaging experience it is. Um, and I'm being a little bit facetious there, but um, you hear that, Steve? You got an attorney to joke a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but he used a big word when he joked. <laughs> <laughs> are you in that process now, Ezra? Uh, so I'll be taking the test next year. Um, we're just focusing yeah. on on getting through some really big issues um, at the end of this year. Uh, you know, the jurisdictions out here that uh, are passionate about putting in place tough regulations to disincentivize housing, they don't rest, and so we don't rest. Um, and that's going to have us pushing uh, pretty aggressively through the end of the year to make sure that we're um, doing everything we can for the development and building industries. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So you came to the HBA. When did you come? Did you, did you say that to our listeners, Ezra? I joined the team in January. Uh, okay. so, uh, been on, been on board about nine months. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're approaching your one year anniversary. It's actually a little bit more than that. It's 11 months. Um, and, um, what did, what were you hired at with the, uh, HBA, your actual position? Yeah, and you, and you you say eleven months, and I'm just realizing how quick time is flying. Like, oh man! Um, so I am our uh, director of policy and government relations. That's a fancy way of saying I manage our government affairs and lobbying efforts in the Portland metro region. So we have a three-person team, and we work with cities, counties, and with metro on land use policies and regulation policies that relate uh, to housing, either the production of housing or the building of housing. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, let's talk, we're going to come back to that because like, like Tucker mentioned, there's a lot of different issues you guys are working through right now and they're pretty intense and fascinating and they affect all of our listeners. And we'll come back to some of those specifically, but let's, let's just kind of overview, you know, again, I personally, and I don't think I'm alone in this, as a realtor who's been to the Street of Dreams probably every year for, gosh, 15 plus years, um, 
and who also has been to many events at the actual HBA event hall there on Bangy Road in Lake Oswego. I mean, I've been to that place. We used to do our company sales meeting every month there for for years. Um, and uh, I, so, so I'm very familiar with the HBA, but in some ways I'm not that familiar with the HBA because I, I see these these components of it. But there's so much of it I don't understand. And 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 when we met for coffee, we, we had some of these questions, and we're going to ask them to you again. So tell us a little bit about the HBA itself. What is the structure of the HBA? How many employees are there? How many members are there? How many builder members are there? And how long has it been around as an organization? Of course, I, I'm saying HBA, but to be clear, we're talking about the Portland Metro HBA, which is, I would I would assume, the biggest one in Oregon, correct? So tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so a little bit about us. Um, so we are a membership trade organization, and we represent folks who work in the residential development and building industries. That's pretty broad. So uh, our core membership consists of builders and developers, um, and we also have a robust membership in folks with background in legal, uh, in engineering, in trades, uh, in all of the finish that goes into new housing, um, in broke with brokers, uh, with real estate agents, pretty much anybody that is engaged in residential development or construction, um, that's who our membership consists of. We have 1,400 members. Um, we're just finishing up, or we just finished up rather, a really robust membership drive, and it looks like we're closer to. Uh, uh, 1,500 members now, um, and those folks work primarily in the Portland metro region, um, but within that region, our membership is pretty geographically diverse. So we have builders, developers who work exclusively in McMinnville or unincorporated Yamhill County. We have folks who will only work in Clackamas County or in the eastern parts of Multnomah County. And we have people that work in Washington County. While there is some um, overlap between those jurisdictions, we found that folks tend to pick a jurisdiction or jurisdictions that they feel passionate about um, and build and develop there year after year. Yeah. Tucker, you're one of those guys, right? <laughs> yeah, one of those guys. I, I, I would say we, you know, are across some of those territories. Yeah, I mean, but you're somebody, and and I, I agree with you, Ezra. I mean, I, you, Tucker, you like Lake Oswego and you like Portland. <clears throat> um, not to say you don't go elsewhere. I I know I work with Riverside Homes. They really stick to Washington County, um, and uh, I, I I it, in our world it, or in your guys's world, it, it it I think it's so much to do with the the municipalities and the the jurisdictions and understanding how to get stuff done. Yeah, it definitely is. One thing I'm interested about, Stephen, kind of clarify because this was a long question. So I can't blame Ezra <laughs> for not hitting all the points, but there was a lot of things to it here. So within the HBA itself, because this is the thing that I was, I'm still a little bit unclear on, even with as much time as I've spent there and you spent a lot of time too. How is it set up? Like you have these different layers or different branches that service different parts of the real estate community. Maybe give us in a nutshell how it's set up and kind of what part does what for the real estate community here. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we're, we're fluid, uh, but I'd say we generally have several large buckets. So the one that most folks are familiar with are our are signature events. So like we talked about the Street of Dreams, the Home and Garden shows that we put on uh, biannually. 
um, as well as the housing forecast, which um, just recently happened. So we have several marquee events that are open to the public um, and that are very well attended and well regarded. We also put on a number of educational events as well as socializing events for our members, so opportunities to kind of build and network uh, within the industry as well as uh, you know, if you need to get uh, continuing education credits, um, we, we put on programming to support that. Um, and then uh, a big chunk of the work that we do is in the government affairs side of things. So that is uh, we, we you know, working with local jurisdictions to, as I said before, advance pro-housing regulations um, and help elect pro-housing candidates. Um, and so we have members that are very... Um, interested and dedicated to government affairs um, and they work through our government affairs committee to kind of shape and direct the work that we do um, with these jurisdictions. And I think that's the part that maybe you and I don't see, Steve, right? Because like, we've been to the Street of Dreams, right? We may, maybe we weren't in the naked hot tub party, but we go, we go to the Street of Dreams, <laughs> we go to the shows. I'm sure. Did you go to the housing forecast this year that they put on? I didn't. I didn't. I like those. I mean, and, it is kind um, of early. It starts at 7 a.m., so you know, a lot of realtors aren't out of bed. But <laughs> joking. But uh, I, I've gone many years. So the point is, is they put on those those outward facing events, right? We're all familiar with. But what we're not so familiar with is the work that they do behind the scenes to kind of help allow us on the building side to produce product for you guys on the realtor side to be able to sell, right? And then all the service yeah. providers in the middle to be able to, you know, take part in. So <laughs> I think that's the part that's kind of was most interesting to me when we had coffee. And obviously, you know, it was interesting to you as well. So for those of you guys out there that are listening, you know, there is that outward facing stuff that many of you have probably partaken in, but it's really the behind the scenes stuff that's probably the most important um, when it comes down to it, at least from the stuff that we were talking about. Would you agree, Ezra? Well, I certainly think so since that's kind of our bailiwick, but um, I think it's the three working in tandem together, which is making sure that uh, we put on world-class events for our members as well as the public. We put on good ed educational opportunities for our members so that they can continue to grow in their businesses. And then we also push the envelope every day to make sure that jurisdictions aren't being unreasonable to new housing. Awesome. Ezra, how many employees are there for the HPA? Yeah, so we have several dozen, and then we scale up for major events. So um, there's folks that we'll work with on a part-time basis, but our core team is a, is a couple dozen folks. Okay. And and um, and they do sit there in that building on Bangy Road above the the event center. Is that correct? That's correct. And we, we'd, we'd yeah. love to show you the office, and we invite yeah. folks to come by and, and meet the team. Yeah. Okay. So there is like offices above there. Yeah. I've always wondered about that. And and that's where you have an office as well, Ezra? Uh, yes, that's right. Okay. And then lastly, on this topic, how long has the Portland Metro HBA been around? Yeah. So, you know, we trace our heritage back um, as, a, as a home builders organization to the, the 50s. Um, so before there were the land use regulations in place that we know today um, in Oregon, as an organization, we've evolved over those many decades to really um, expand our focus uh, as our membership expands the type of housing that they built. Looking back um, you know, to the post-war development that occurred in Oregon, it was really one type of housing, single-family homes. Um, and today we have membership that builds single-family, multi-family, they build attached and detached, they build primary and accessory. We have folks that specialize entirely on cluster housing and cottage housing. 
Um, so it's really expanded um, the universe of, of housing uh, that our membership provides. Awesome. Awesome. And, and for our listeners, just to kind of bring this home, um, in our world as realtors, the, the HBA is to builders kind of what PMAR and NAR, um, it, well, PMAR is the better example because NAR is national, but, um, PMAR, Portland Metro Area Realtor Association, how they, they band together. We, through them, um, are, uh, are represented locally in our interests, um, much like the HBA does for builders. So talk to us a little bit about the objectives of the builders and the eight in the charter of the HBA. What's the mandate? Yeah. So our, our focus on the government affairs side is really to ensure that we're doing everything in our power to advance a framework of regulations at the local level, um, that supports new housing. So, um, that takes on a whole variety of meanings depending on the jurisdiction that they're working in. As builders, developers know, doing business in Oregon City is very different than be doing business in Lake Oswego and very different than doing business in the city of Tigard. Um, each jurisdiction has its own flavor and its own flair. Um, and the elected leaders in these jurisdictions all have very different viewpoints on housing, whether they want it, whether they think it should be something that's permitted in their, in their uh, boundaries, or whether it's something that they don't like and they want to make more difficult to build. You got that, Steve? So basically, mm -hmm. they get to figure yeah, out I did. Who, who's the biggest pain in the asses around town, <laughs> and then go to go to battle for us, so that we can try and build housing that's needed, right? And and I will interject this, and I don't know how much Ezra wants to talk about. It. I'll I'll leave it to him. But you know, we looked at a very interesting report while we were at coffee the other morning, and I, it was very eye opening to me, and I know it was eye opening to you, but it was basically an available lands report for uh, <clears throat> a certain um, you know town around town or city around town here. And, you know, what did you think of that? I'm curious from your standpoint, Steve, what you thought, um, you know, from the realtor side, because we all hear about the urban growth boundary and the, you know, available land within it. And that's why it doesn't get pushed. But what did you think of that report? The one of about Tualatin? Yeah, yeah. So so what I what I took from that, and by the way, Tucker, if, if this whole real estate thing doesn't work out for you and me, I think we're pretty good interpreters for attorneys. <laughs> what he's really saying is he finds the biggest pain in the ass jurisdiction. I love it. Um, so uh, what what I took from that was that um, some of these municipalities aren't very thorough in and I, and I don't know if that's deliberate or not deliberate. That's a, a question um, probably for Ezra in understanding how much housing they need and how much, how many lots they have. So in other words, it sounds to me like, you know, Metro goes to a city like Tualatin and says, you know, I, I, obviously I'm going to, I'm going to say this at a high level, but it's way more intricate than this, but Hey, how many how many lots do you have, Tualatin? We're trying to figure out how much the entire region needs, and Tualatin is required to come up with some kind of report saying, "Hey, based on our based on what we know, here is we have you know X amount of lots. Maybe it's a thousand buildable lots um, that we can start tap into. That's kind of like our reserves to 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 build for the next five, ten years, whatever." What um, Ezra's report showed was Tualatin put out that report. And they found holes in it. They found completely um, blatant situations where 
they were saying we have X amount of lots here when really there's like a retirement home there or something. And so it's they're they're what they're giving Metro, if it's inaccurate and then Metro's making decisions about whether to expand the UGB based on that, it causes huge constrictions and problems for the overall um, Portland housing um, area. That sound about right? I think, Ezra? Sum, I think you summed it up. Well, I will add the kind of a, little uh, ending point to it is actually one of the pieces of land that Tualatin identified as redevelopable land was actually an assisted care facility that my grandma was staying at that I had gone and visited her at the week before we had coffee with Ezra. And it was brand new, which kind of blew my mind that that somehow made it on an available lands report when they literally just built a brand new assisted care facility on this large chunk of land. So I, I was interested in what he showed us for sure. I don't know how public they make it. Uh, it. He had a report, so I'm assuming it's fairly public. But would you say, Ezra, that that same type of issue is popping up not only in Tualatin but in other cities' reports as well? Or do you think it was very isolated um, to Tualatin in this case? Yeah, no, great great questions and great summary, Steve. Thank you for that. Um, for those of you that aren't familiar out there in podcast land, um, when a local jurisdiction wants to update its comprehensive plan, they need to produce what's called a housing needs analysis. And that housing needs analysis spells out how many units of housing and, and what types of housing are going to be needed over the next 20 years. As part of that report, cities will also produce a buildable lands inventory. And that's exactly what Steve was talking about, which is what lots are available, where are those lots, how much density can those lots support? And by using those lots, do we know whether or not we're hitting our target for the needed housing? Um, cities, so the, the city of Tualatin was in the process of updating their comprehensive plan. And so they produced one of these reports. And Steve is absolutely correct that the buildable lands inventory included in the city of Tualatin's uh, draft housing need analysis identified 11 parcels. Uh, and on those 11 parcels, um, there were almost 700 and, well, there were almost 800 units of housing uh, that currently existed. And it's some of the city's older multifamily housing, both for sale condos uh, and, and rental apartments, as well as a senior assisted living facility. Um, and the city uh, got that report uh, from a consultant and we failed to do any further analysis to really ground truth and look at the lots that they were showing in, re in the report as available for the development of land. Um, so in answer to your question, uh, Tucker, it's our responsibility as an organization to make sure that when cities produce housing needs analyses and buildable lands inventories, that somebody is out there checking the work and making sure that what they're saying actually ground truths and can be effectuated um, through the development process. Because absent that, what we have are a series of plans that don't have enough land available in them to accommodate the housing that cities are going to need over the next 20 years. And without that available land, what we will continue to see are raising housing prices across the board. 
So, Steve, here we go. I'm going to take another stab at summers, summarizing uh, attorney legal, although that was actually very clear. But I'm going, to, I'm going to have some fun here on today's show. So, basically, when a city submits a uh, available lands report to Metro, Metro then says, we're not going to push the urban growth boundary because it appears we have enough available lands within these cities. But if you look at those available lands reports and they're so erroneous um, that, you know, they include a ton of land that's either already been developed um, or, you know, recently or in the you know recent past or even further back than that, but has a large number of units on it already, they're making a decision to not or they're making an ill-informed decision to either push the UGB or not, basically based on a report that it has erroneous information. So they're going in and they're digging into this report saying, okay, you're basing your decisions off of this report, but this report has a bunch of false information in it. And so it was very interesting for me to see that because I figured that whoever was doing these reports, there was enough checks and balances along the way that they weren't going to include, you know, for example, the large tract of land that had a brand new assisted care facility on it. Like how in the world could that make it onto an available lands report? But as we found out, it does. So it was a real eye opener for us. I'm glad that Ezra shared it with us. But that's basically some of the behind the scenes stuff that they're doing. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, I guess, my summary, Steve. How do you think I did? Yeah, no, that's great. Um, Ezra, do you think those mistakes ever go the other way where they underestimate how much they have? Or do you think the municipalities prefer to be um, erroneous in the direction of too much? Yeah, I don't I don't think any of these errors are intentional in nature. I think what we're dealing with is a situation where it's highly complex. Jurisdictions may not be familiar with the process. They may not have the resources to go and look at the partials that they're actually identifying. Um, and they may just let one error feed another um, to a point where you, you put out a report that's not very useful. So, so we don't think any of it is malicious or, or intentious, intentional in that regard. Um, from the reports that we've seen, they, they tend to go in one direction, right? We're dealing with jurists. When, when you're looking at infill parcels, it's rare that you will overestimate the, um, or, or rather underestimate the amount of available land that you have because in urban infill settings, there is more development than not. Um, and the development that exists, uh, jurisdictions can, you know, tend to know about it because they're the ones issuing permits and they're the ones um, connecting sewer lines and, and approving projects on those lots. Yeah. Um, since we're on the subject, I, <clears throat> and I don't think we talked about this at coffee. I, I, it's, it made me think of something. <clears throat> On a high level, what is the HBA's view of the UGB? And let me let me clarify that, okay? Does the HBA's view, because that's obviously a big part of what you guys do, right? That, that controls everything that your members, uh, and it, it affects your members so tremendously, right? In other words, like if the UGB was suddenly moved to Woodburn tomorrow, there'd be a lot of land, right? But would that be good for the for the HBA or would that be too much? So does the HBA take a balanced approach to the UGB? Like we want, we want more, but not too much or is more better always for the, in the HBA's mind? Yeah, I know. That's a really great question. So um, just a little bit of background about 90 to 95% of our builder developer members work exclusively within the urban footprint. So these are folks uh, like Tucker that are doing development within jurisdictional boundaries. 
Um, that's the bulk of the housing that's getting built today in the Portland metro area. Uh, and because urban growth boundary areas need a lot of infrastructure uh, and need a lot of support before they can accommodate development, the type of housing that gets built there um, tends to be a little bit more expensive. Um, and our members, while some of our members build that housing, a lot of them build starter homes. They build homes that are accessible to uh, folks making around the area medium income. Um, and those types of homes really can only be built within uh, the urban boundary. Now, specifically with regards to, to the UGB, we support ensuring that there's enough land for housing, kind of full stop, I think is, is, the, is the clearest way to, to articulate that. And like we talked about with Tualatin's draft buildable lands inventory, if the um, cities are not doing a good job of identifying where that land can, where that land is that can accommodate new housing, um, then everybody's going to be worse off for it. So we believe that cities need to do honest accounting. They need to clearly articulate where they are going to support housing over the next 20 years, whether that is available land within a city boundary, whether that land becomes available through rezoning from previous industrial land to land that can now support housing, whether that's upzoning, so taking lower density zoning and allowing for more housing to go on it, or um, expanding the urban growth boundary to accommodate that new housing. Right. Mm -hmm. We believe that there's not one right answer to the question of where is the land for housing going to come from. But we believe that cities need to be honest in their decision making process and they need to accommodate the housing somewhere. Um, you know, state law is very explicit that cities need to accommodate growth. Uh, we don't have a system where people can roll up the drawbridge and put the alligators in the moat and say, no, thank you. We're full. We don't want any more people. Um, and specifically in the Portland metro region, where we do have regional coordination on so many important issues from trash collection to transportation, infrastructure funding, it's extremely important that all of our jurisdictions play by the same set of rules. Um, and, and that means that every city needs to do their part to ensure they have an honest accounting of the available land um, and are willing to make the tough decisions about where housing is going to go again in that next 20 year timeline. So um, some of that housing is going to be supported through urban growth boundary expansions. Some of that housing is going to be supported <clears throat> through rezoning. Some of that housing is going to be supported through upzoning. Um, it's really the combination of all that which is going to get us to where we need to be um, and, and that's a world where we're producing enough housing for all Oregonians of all income levels. Hey, um, Ezra, question for you. Does the HBA interact with other associations around the state or maybe even beyond? And I'll give you a kind of a frame of reference on this question. When we've had um, RMLS's Kurt Von Wasmuth on here, he, it sounded to us like he pretty frequently gets together with other MLS's and at, I don't know if it's they have MLS conventions or <laughs> meet and greets or whatever, but they definitely they definitely, um, you know, share their strategies, you know, missions, what they're what's working, what's not. Do you guys do that as well? Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, you know, coalition building is such an important piece of what we do. Um, you mentioned PMAR before. They're great friends of ours, great allies, love the team over there. And we've worked collaboratively with them at, at issues kind of throughout the region as they crop up. Uh, each city really has its own unique uh, organizations uh, that, that thrive there. So in the city of Portland, we do a lot of work with community-based nonprofits that are focused on ensuring that there's enough housing um, at all levels for folks in their communities. Um, in other jurisdictions, we work very closely with the chambers of commerce. Um, it really depends on the jurisdiction, uh, but we have an open door policy. And I think it's really reflected in the type of advocacy that we do. Um, I'll just go back to Portland one more time because we, sp we do a lot of work there. Um, you know, our uh, recent op-ed, which was published in the Portland Tribune, was, was jointly written by myself, uh, by the folks at Thousand Friends, uh, which is an advocacy organization that uh, also looks very closely um, at available land for housing, and the Housing Lands Advocates. And that's an organization that's really dedicated to ensuring that there's enough land available for affordable housing um, in Oregon. So. You know, that was something that we did very purposefully, which was ensuring that we had a different voices at the table for our communications, because it's important that we're not the only ones talking about the need for housing. We're hearing those conversations percolate up to the service in all sorts of communities. Um, and whoever is interested in having that conversation, we'll partner with them. And we're excited about that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One other question that I had while we were talking, HBA, <clears throat> do they, does their, um, does their line on what they do and focus on stop with brand new construction or is there any overlap into remodeling, um, tear downs? I guess, I guess that would be maybe viewed new construction. Speak to that, Ezra. Yeah. And maybe, maybe I wasn't um, articulate enough before, but, um, we think of new housing being both new housing that's built from the ground up as well as housing that is remodeled and, and okay. made really usable again. So we have a, a really robust group of remodelers um, that work throughout the region. Um, a lot of our efforts are directed at ensuring that remodelers aren't unduly hit with regulations that are unfair. Um, so, for us, it's all housing is good housing. You know, like I said before, um, our members build all types of housing. They also do remodel. Um, and we have members that build <clears throat> covenanted affordable housing. So, you know, government subsidized housing available to folks making less than the area medium income. Um, and that housing is critically important um, to the region. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So I want to segue, Steve, um, into a couple of things that uh, I think people will find interesting. So we were chatting, you know, at coffee, and there was a few behind-the-scenes issues that uh, Ezra was working on beyond just the available lands report, which was obviously an eye-opener for you and I uh, in terms of that. But there was two other things he said, and my ears perked up probably a little bit more so just because of the fact that they directly, you know, um, affect what it is that we're trying to do. 
And those were the change in the Portland tree code uh, in terms of uh, the fines that will be lobbied against you. Um, and then also the potential proposal of a demolition tax in the city of Lake Oswego. So I wanted Ezra to have the floor here and kind of give our listeners the details on both. Um, so that, and then obviously we can comment on it. But uh, I wanted I wanted to at least get the word out so that people can be aware of this. So let's start with the the tree code changes and talk about that. Yeah. So um, the the city of Portland will currently charge you uh, fines for removing trees as part of the development process. The code that directs that those fines, excuse me, was put in place several years ago, uh, and it had a sunset clause put in it, meaning that the entire code would sunset at the end of 2019. The city did that because the process that led up to the promulgation of the code was not transparent. It was done with backroom deals. It was managed um, pretty heavy-handedly by a city commissioner, and there really wasn't a lot of opportunity for folks who build um, and develop to engage in a conversation with the city about the impacts of these regulations. So the, the tree code that exists today um, has a lot of failings in it. Um, the requirements for uh, a, a root shed protection are such that even in situations where trees can be saved um, uh, and can be properly managed by a professional arborist, the city essentially directs you to remove the tree. Um, because they say that, you know, you're not creating a, a big enough buffer uh, for the root system, even when you are. Um, the city also acts in, you know, fairly perverse manners when you'll have one bureau direct you to remove a tree in order to accommodate a wider sidewalk or um, put in place a mandated driveway or build out a bioswale. Um and then we'll fine you for removing that tree. Um, City of Portland and their unique bureau system is such that there just isn't a lot of communication between the different bureaus when it comes to the tree code. So um, as that ordinance was preparing to sunset, staff brought forward a request to continue it for another two years and to ask the city council for resources to do the types of in-depth analysis that usually accompanies new regulations um, and to convene broad-based stakeholder groups to ensure that everybody that's impacted by the ordinance has a seat at the table. And their timeline for that was approximately two years. Unfortunately, in an 11th hour pivot at the city Planning and Sustainability Commission, um, and then subsequently to that at the Urban Forestry Commission, the commissions voted to remove some of the exemptions that currently exist in the code, as well as greatly increase the fines associated with removing trees. Um, now, let me be very clear that we are not anti-tree. Um, you know, we... Uh, and, and our members are very interested in having a conversation with the city about crafting the appropriate types of regulations to ensure that our existing urban forestry canopy 
is maintained and enhanced. Um, but when folks come forward with 11-hour changes that will dramatically increase the cost of producing new housing, and these proposals come about not through the normal um, community engagement process that Portland um, is known for, but, but kind of rushed, done at the 11th hour, and without community and stakeholder participation, that's where we really get nervous. And so what we've highlighted for the city is really the need to go with the initial staff recommendation. So that's kind of continuing the ordinance for another two years, putting the resources in place to actually study the ordinance so we know its impact, so we understand how it's working, how it could be changed and made better, um, and to come back only after there's really been robust stakeholder engagement. Um, absent that, the city is just going to commit the same error that it did the first time uh, this ordinance was put in effect, uh, which is rushing something through without fully understanding the implications um, and then dealing with the repercussions of that as housing becomes more expensive. So I think what he's talking about, Steve, just to clarify, is right now one of the biggest challenges with you know cutting a tree in the city of Portland, let's say you have a lot, right? It's a, Let's just call it a simple infill lot. It's 5,000 square feet. You have a small, you know, 40s, 30s built salt box type house on it. Maybe it's 800, 900 square feet. Hasn't been maintained forever. It's been a rental for, let's call it 30 years. It's got original windows. It's got asbestos siding. It's got a terrible floor plan. And it's got your old Portland crumbly foundation that's maybe six foot, seven inches tall down there anyway. And it's unfinished, right? You have all these things. As as Randy would say, right, it's, you've got this asbestos-led thing that you got to get rid of so you can get new housing in there that's you know a much better place to live, which I agree with him. But right behind the house, which would sit within the footprint of a new home, which of course is going to have a bigger footprint than eight 900 square feet, right, sits a tree that's 49 inches in diameter, right? Doesn't really matter what kind is my understanding, but it's 49 inches in diameter. That tree is going to cost you $12,000 minimum fee plus $300 per caliper inch above 48 inches. So if that tree is 52 inches, you multiply $300 times an additional 4 inches. Uh, if it's 68 inches, you, you get my math, right? But what my understanding is, is that the city is trying to take that idea, which has been in place, um, which then what that does is it translates to a higher cost of redevelopment, which ultimately just means that us as builders can pay less money to the homeowner or we try and push the price higher on the other end, either of which is not good, right? You're either getting less money to people in their pockets that ultimately is a retirement account or you're creating more um, housing that is more expensive on the other end. You can only push the market so much. So it comes from one of those two places. Right now, that line in the sand for that big fine of $12,000 plus 300 bucks a caliper inch is at 48 inches. What they're trying to do, um, from what I understood from Ezra, is that they're pushing that number down to 20 inches. So any tree that is 20 inches in diameter or bigger um, has a set of fines attached to it. I don't know exactly what the numbers are, if they're the same or if they differ a little bit. But virtually every tree that sits on a lot that's going to be redeveloped is about 20 inches or more in diameter. Uh, being bigger than 48 inches, that's a big tree. But 20 inches in diameter is not a very big tree. So basically you're saying every tree that gets cut is going to have a big price tag attached to it, which then comes from two places, out of the homeowner's pocket or from the market on the other end, neither of which is good. Is that a good interpretation, Ezra? It absolutely is, Tucker. And I think importantly, if you look at 
the urban forestry reports, looking at how they're spending this money, you'll see that based on their most recent report, they have hundreds of thousands of dollars currently sitting in an account uh, for use to, you know, plant trees or protect our existing um, urban canopy. So it's unclear why they need such a significant influx of dollars. Um, the city hasn't articulated that. Um, and they haven't done any analysis to show us what the implications would be of dramatically increasing these fees. So whether it's leading to more housing unaffordability or it's leading to less slots being developed, meaning that more folks are going to have to live farther from the urban core and drive uh, to commute to work. Um, you know, those implications are totally unknown. And because these recommendations came at such a late point in the process, um, staff has not been able to provide those fairly basic answers to the questions that have been raised. Do, do the municipalities, and I know this, that's, that's a lot of them, um, but let's say Portland, for example, and then speak maybe and beyond that. Are they pretty good about engaging with you guys? I mean, is there a pretty open communication channel? Do they allow you guys... I mean, does, does the HBA have a pretty good seat at the table for these conversations or is it a grind and does it vary a lot? Yeah, I would say it, it goes from very good to a little bit of a grind. You know, most jurisdictions recognize the value of housing. Um, they, they realize that, you know, without it, their residents are going to be hard pressed to afford to live in their communities. Um, they also realize that as I talked about before, this really is a regional effort um, to provide enough housing that that they need to play by the same rules as everybody else. So I'd really shout out some wonderful cities in in all three of the, the major urban counties um, that are engaging, allow for broad-based conversations with our membership and with us. Um, there are some outliers, unfortunately, you know, there are some jurisdictions that have made it clear that they have no interest in supporting new housing, um, you know, that they would rather sue the state than accommodate new residents in their neighborhoods. And so those cities, it's a little bit tougher to have a conversation with because we're so ideologically opposed. I think wow. the city of Portland is a, is a unique example because it is so um, siloed. Some bureaus are really great at having conversations and they recognize that they need to have broad-based stakeholder engagement throughout the process of crafting any new rule. Others, you know, quite frankly, couldn't care less and it's a little bit tougher to connect with them. That's why it's so important in the city of Portland to have elected leaders that are willing to listen to a wide variety of voices um, and really facilitate good stakeholder engagement because when it's done right it can produce fantastic regulations that make sense for everybody um, and when it's done wrong it produces a lot of unintended consequences that have negative implications for housing costs and this would be a negative unintended consequence but just for clarification this new um, potential tree code, because of the sunset clause, would it go into effect as of the beginning of 2020? Yeah, so it's a little bit unclear right now. So this week, um, the Portland City Council is going to bring forward a recommendation 
to extend the current regulations for two years. So that's staff's initial recommendation and that'll be going before the city council. And because they wanna put that in place to ensure that it doesn't sunset at the end of this year. The recommendations that came from the two commissions are tentatively scheduled for the first week in December. Um, the staff report isn't out yet, so I, I can't tell you the specifics of it. We don't know exactly what the fees are gonna be. We don't know exactly um, uh, what exemptions may be available. Um, and we certainly don't have any of the substantive questions that we raised um, just now and, and with staff over the last several weeks. Um, so the city council may be considering those recommendations before the end of the year. It may be a little bit later. It's a little bit unknown at this point. And it is going to be up to the mayor to determine whether or not these recommendations move forward. So there you go, huh? So yeah. if you've got any clients, Steve, with uh, trees on a property that's a teardown, you've got a big X factor on what that property is ultimately worth to somebody like myself or any other builders around town. So I, I felt that was important to talk about. I know we, we're cutting it short here, but there's one other big topic that I wanted to um, allow Ezra to kind of talk about here. And this was one that made my jaw drop when we went to coffee <laughs> last week. Um, and that was uh, in the city that we do a lot of building in, which is the city of Lake Oswego. So there is a proposed tax that apparently will go out for public uh, comment, I would imagine, something like that, um, or even more so, I'll let Ezra clarify, but uh, the tax is a demolition tax, and the dollar figure for that is staggering. So anytime you tear down a house in the city of Lake Oswego, it does not matter if the house should be torn down or not, there is a monstrous teardown tax that then... Uh, gets assigned to it. So you as the builder, developer, or homeowner uh, are then responsible for potentially paying this. So I'll let Ezra kind of air it out here, but this one made my jaw drop. Yeah, thank, thanks, Tucker. And, and this is really a great example of a jurisdiction looking at implementing a regulation that would have tremendously negative impacts to housing. Um, it's a it, The proposal is for a $15,000 demolition tax um, essentially, if, if you needed to demolish a house in order to build new housing, um, regardless of whether that housing is big or small or how many units would be there, um, the city would charge you $15,000. Um, and we all know, having you know, pulled demo permits in other jurisdictions, that the cost associated to the city with reviewing and managing a demolition permit is not $15,000. It is a tiny fraction of that. And so we see this proposal as being punitive in nature, uh, as being highly anti-housing. And from a number of folks that we've spoken to, we believe that uh, the, the genesis of this is really um, the city of Lake Oswego wanting to put in place poison pills to dissuade the construction of smaller scale missing metal housing. Um, so I know that uh, that you guys have talked about before, House Bill 2001, uh, and some of its implications allowing for uh, different types of smaller scale housing in communities that were previously uh, zoned for single family only. Um, and because the state is going is, is mandating that cities put in place regulations to accommodate that sort of housing in, in the coming years, uh, we anticipate seeing a number of poison pills uh, being put out there that 
you know, for, for all intents and purposes, just dissuade people from building that type of housing. Unfortunately, that's what it's looking like uh, we're going to see in Lake Oswego, and we're considering kind of all of our options um, to, to, to see how we can um, push back against that. Talk, talk Tucker about how that would affect you. Obviously beyond the 50, that's just $15,000 dead money. That's not even the true cost or labor or anything else you would incur to actually tear down the house. Talk about how that would affect you because you deal with that a lot here in, in Lake Oswego, Tucker. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's basically the same thing as a tree tax, right? I mean, you're, you're making the cost of housing to create new housing that much more expensive. So that either comes from two places. It comes from the old homeowner, which then is selling their home. And if it's a tear down that, that those funds are either used for retirement more than likely, or to help pay for retirement and assisted care down the line. So you're basically robbing additional dollars that they could make from their account, or it's a combination of that and whatever the builder feels like maybe they could make up on the other end by being aggressive with a price. The chances of builders trying to make it up purely on the other end at this point is probably pretty small just because of where we're at in the market cycle. So my guess is that you throw that on top and that's going to get factored in as just an additional cost of construction and it basically takes the lot cost down. So like in first edition right now, I would say the average lot cost is somewhere around 550000 You put this in place, it drops it to five thirty-five overnight. Um, so that's kind of how it'll play out in reality. I think Ezra's right about there's going to be a lot of these poison pills that kind of get thrown around because of, um, you know, the House Bill uh, 2020, I believe it was, you know, with the ability to build multifamily in underlying single family zoned areas. And it's going to be interesting to see. I know the city of West Lynn has said that they adamantly oppose it and they are looking for other cities to kind of hitch their wagon to them to fight the state. This is probably Lake Oswego's way of kind of a roundabout way of fighting that without getting into major litigation. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what other stuff comes up. But this, if this goes through, there's definitely an impact not only on us as a builder, um, but I would say to homeowners even more so. So I, I wanted to give him a chance to kind of air it out here on the show. Yeah, and we anticipate seeing um, the draft ordinance in December. Um, the city council already voted to move forward to direct staff to draft the ordinance. Um, and so for those of you doing work in Lake Oswego, we absolutely recommend that you touch base with the city uh, and let them know the implications that this tax would have on your business. Hmm. So there you go, Steve. Something to think about, right? Get in touch with your local uh, city councilman. Yeah, I think this affects you just slightly more, man, Tucker. That's a, that's a big one for you. Um, awesome. Well, uh, did you have any other, um, hot topics that are out there right now, Ezra, that you wanted to wrap up with? Well, I think, I think the Lake Oswego demo tax is something that everybody should be paying attention to right now. Uh, its implications are, are far reaching. We anticipate other jurisdictions looking at something similar <laughs> if this moves forward. Um, I would say that, you know, a big part of my job is just remaining vigilant and making sure that we are seeing these things coming down the pike. Um, and if you'd like to learn more about the work that we do or, or to plug into that, um, you know, look up the HBA online um, and, and touch base with us. We're always happy to connect and, and work in a collaborative fashion to make sure that there's more opportunities for more housing. Yeah, and Ezra, on that note, you have you do you're certified to do continuing education, and you do have venues that you can um, or not venues. Venues is the wrong word. You do have um, 
education that you can go out if one of our listeners, um, whether it's a, uh, a another real estate company, um, I know I've put you in touch with our education committee. Um, talk a little bit about that and, and how you can get involved in helping educate our listeners. Yeah, and thanks for that, Steve. Um, so right now we're teaching a class on House Bill 2001. That's the missing middle housing bill that Tucker and I were just discussing a minute ago. Um, it has some pretty far-reaching implications, um, and it's a really interesting piece of legislation that uh, can provide a lot of fantastic opportunities for folks um, throughout the, the metro region. So um, if you're interested in learning more about uh, House Bill 2001, how it may change the landscape of housing in the coming years and decades, um, please reach out. And uh, we're happy to schedule something um, and provide some continuing education credits for you and your team. Awesome. Awesome. And then just to wrap up, how can realtors, home builders and other industry associates, how can they support the HBA in all these causes that you guys, you know, we appreciate so much all that you're doing to to create housing because we all benefit from that in our industry. What can we do to support you besides going to the street of dreams and not going, getting drunk and going in a hot tub? <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate that. As I said before, you know, we're a membership based organization. Um, and so we would love to have you and, and everyone else as a member. Um, we uh, fund the bulk of our operations through our events. So uh, come to the street of dreams, come to the home and garden show, um, come to and sponsor the housing forecast. Uh, if you're passionate about government affairs, if you're passionate about um, working to advance a regulatory framework that is more um, supportive of new housing of all types uh, and at all price points, then consider joining as a member and participating on our government affairs committee. Um, we are engaged across the region and our strength comes from our membership. So the more folks that participate, the more folks that provide their expertise uh, and their time uh, make us stronger uh, and makes our voice that much more amplified when we go and speak with decision makers um, at the city, county, and metro level. Very cool. Well, there we go, guys. Hopefully you got a lot out of this show. Uh, like me and Steve said, we wanted to bring him on to really kind of pull back the curtain of what the HBA does, but also some of the really important stuff that they're working on right now and some of the things that are coming down the pipe that uh, are going to affect all of us. And I know that, uh, you know, we talked about the demo tax and the tree code and it affects me as a builder more than some of you, but it trickles down and ultimately affects everyone. So uh, make sure that you reach out to Ezra if you need any additional, um, you know, education stuff done because he's great with that from what I've heard. Steve, you plugged him already. I'm sure you're hooking him up with the PPG crowd. Uh, but also uh, we'll have links in the show notes so that you can join the HBA and you can help support the cause and uh, support the good fight. Awesome. Well, it was great having you on the show, Ezra. Keep in touch with us. Let us know what other future um, happenings are occurring, and, and maybe we can get you back on the show to talk about um, them as, as, as it makes sense. Sounds like a plan, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for listening to our show, and make sure to tune in next week for another great episode of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. 